She's Tori. And he's Nick. And this is I Want to Rewatch The Night Strangler. An X Files adjacent podcast. The Night Strangler was written by Richard Matheson and based on characters created by Jeff Rice. It was directed and produced by Dan Curtis. It was filmed on location in Seattle. And the original air date was Tuesday, January 16th, 1973, as an ABC movie of the week. And it aired from 8.30 to 10 p.m. So this is taken directly from Wikipedia with some interjections by me. The Night Strangler proved almost as popular as its predecessor, The Night Stalker, garnering strong ratings and eventually prompting ABC to order a TV series, which neither writer Richard Matheson nor producer-director Dan Curtis were involved with. In the United States, The Night Strangler ran without commercials approximately 74 minutes and ABC planned to release the film overseas. So they had additional footage, which included Al Lewis, Kate Murtaugh and Margaret Hamilton filmed, which rounded the movie out to a full 90 minutes. And the 90 minute version is the version that is usually used when they're doing re-airings as it fit into a two hour schedule with commercials. It's also the version that's released on VHS in 1999 and in all recent DVDs And therefore is the version that we watched. And honestly, I don't think I've ever seen the original cut because I can't ever remember being surprised by the new footage. So like, I can't imagine that footage not being in the movie. So I don't think I've ever seen the original 74 minute version. Yeah. And then taken from IMDb, the events of the film are explicitly said to begin on Saturday, April 1st and conclude immediately after Wednesday, the 19th of April. All specified dates given within the film anchor it firmly to 1972, however, because of the fact that like Saturday is the first and that is in 72. However, the story itself talks about the 21 year cycle that we're going to discuss, which should be 1973, because we have at one point 21 years from the last spate of murders would be 1952. So, which is actually really weird when you think about it, because this aired in January of 1973 and yet we're talking about things happening in 1973 but i think what happened is they needed math that worked out to 1889 as yeah and then also worked with like the night stalker the previous movie so they wanted to be like a year later and it needed to match up to the number that they're going to use which is a historical number they can't change that part yes so they just had (laughs) some math and that's what worked out that's okay i'm sure a lot of people aren't really you know worried about it although i'm sure there were some people who were like oh it's gonna happen in april yeah well that's why that that the fact that like like saturday april 1st was in 1972 i guess if you were in 1973 you would be aware of the fact that like april 1st was a saturday but like you know me as a kid watching it or as an adult watching it i'm like whatever saturday april 1st okay that could be any year right i don't know but it would be weird if they're talking about 1973 and you're watching something in january and they're talking about april that i think might have been weird yeah i watched it but again, watching it like after the fact, it's like, oh, yeah, totally. It's 1973. But yeah, it's weird. Yeah. So in this movie, well, in Seattle, Kolchak runs into his old editor and he manages to get a job just in time to report on a new series of murders. There are eerie similarities to the vampire killings in Las Vegas. Women are being killed by a super strong man and they're missing a little bit of blood. So he's wondering if this is another vampire or if something else is going on. Hmm, maybe. 
Is it so, aliens? yeah, so we get <laughs> we get a nice aerial shot of like a ferry going across Puget Sound, and we get Kolchek's signature voiceover, and he's telling us that this is a story about the most vicious murders that ever happened in Seattle, Washington. And then the camera pans over to Seattle skyline, and we see the monorails. We're getting like this is on location in Seattle. Okay, this is not <laughs> filmed in like Los Angeles. All right. And then he's talking about the facts were falsified. That's why we probably haven't heard the true story. So Saturday, April 1st, approximately 2.35 a.m., a young woman, Marissa, a dancer at a bar in Pioneer Square is heading to the bus to get home. She's had a long night of dancing and she's looking forward to a hot shower and going to bed. However, she never made it. We see her look behind her as she's being followed and then someone drops a bottle and it breaks and she's like, <gasps> Is someone down there? Is someone down there? And then she sees someone and he starts chasing her. So she runs and then she runs out in the street and the taxi almost hits her. And she's like, oh, and then she's like, hey, hey, can you give me a ride? I just need to go here and here. Can you please help me? Someone's following me. And the guy's like, no, whatever. And he like drives off and she's like, huh. And then like just walks to the bus stop. So apparently she's not running anymore. She's like strangely calm after she wants to get by a taxi and someone's chasing her. But she's <laughs> at the bus stop and she lights a cigarette and is sitting there waiting, and then someone grabs her from behind. Ooh, creepy. But, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, it's, I don't know. I used to walk home from, like, bars and stuff where I would work all the time in, like, similar areas of Seattle much later. And, like, I never really thought about it. But if someone was, like, following you or if it felt like they were following you, it'd be super creepy. But then, like, once they're gone, you're like, oh, okay, I guess they weren't really following me. So you do kind of, like, tell yourself it's nothing. <laughs> Which yeah i didn't great, it just but... it just kind of caught me because she's like help 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 you know she's running and like the taxi almost hits her and she's like help 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 and then like the taxi driver's like ah whatever and drives away and then she's like huh like gives like the harumph kind of look on her face and then just like <laughs> like she looked like literally shrugs her shoulder and then just walks away and was like there was someone chasing you like <laughs> 10 seconds ago and now you're like oh well i didn't get killed by a taxi and the taxi driver's a jerk i'm cool <laughs> she does right. seem a little calm at the bus stop instead of like looking <laughs> around or whatever to make sure no one's following her i don't know yeah because she's waiting for the 3 a.m bus so she's got a she's got a bit of a wait for her yeah for so, sure yeah and she's wearing her little hot pants and she's obviously a sexy dancer so yeah but anyway so two days later at the Seattle Press Club, which is a bar, we see Tony Vincenzo and he's sitting there having a drink. Um, he overhears a conversation, including a familiar voice, and he's just like, oh, no. So he asks the bartender <laughs> to look around the corner and he kind of describes Kolchak and like the bartender is kind of like, yeah. And Kolchak has a scrapbook of stuff about the vampire case in Vegas that he's like pasted together and he's like showing it to somebody. And it looks like he's probably trying to pitch a story or something. But the man just isn't impressed. So he gets up and leaves. And so everyone in the bar, like Kolchak shouts after him about like vampires or something. And so everyone's like staring at Kolchak and he gets up to leave and he sees Vincenzo. And so he's like, oh, what are you doing in Seattle? And then he finds out he's an editor. So then he's like, okay, you got to hire me. You got to hire me. <laughs> I guess hilarious. One is that Vincenzo goes into the bar and the partner is like, you're regular. And he's like, yeah, he brings them a glass of milk. <laughs> he's drinking milk at the bar um it's all the then, acid yeah. in his stomach from being an yeah editor. i was saying he's got an <laughs> ulcer from having to deal with kolchak yeah even though it's been like a year so yeah <laughs> and then he's like look around that corner and see if there's someone behind me he looks like an extra from 
it was like some like I can't remember what the name of it exactly is, but it's like like from Newsies or something. I mean, it's not Newsies, but it's like some equivalent like old play about you know newspaper reporters. And he's like, oh, yep, there's somebody back there that looks like that. And he's like, oh god. Yeah. <laughs> So the next day, Vincenzo and Kolchak are standing in the office of the newspaper's owner, and his name's Llewellyn Crossbinder. And he basically warns Kolchak that there won't be any funny business at the newspaper, but apparently he's gotten the job, so he's good. And as they leave, Vincenzo gives Kolchak his first assignment, which is to cover the strangulation of Marissa, the dancer, which happened three days ago. Yep. And you get the feeling that, like, Vincenzo knows that Kolchak is a pain in the ass, but, like, he also knows that he's a good reporter, because, but then he also gives them the exact same kind of story that he worked on in Las Vegas, which is like, oh, there's <laughs> women being murdered and we don't know how. Go check this out. Like, I know. <laughs> but also, like, he's probably like a good crime beat reporter. Like, that's probably yeah. usually what he did. So, like, it would make sense. But yeah, it's like, here's a case yeah. that's eerily similar to the ones that got us in trouble in Vegas. Yeah. Have so, it. as we said, three days later, Tuesday, April 4th, Kolchek is heading to the police station to get info about Marissa's death. Her real name was actually Ethel Parker. So Marissa was like her dancer name and introduces himself to the police, but he doesn't get any leads. And then the medical examiner's report is a pretty standard issue medical examiner's report. And he eventually gets escorted out of the station because he's asking everybody questions and no one wants to talk to him. So then he goes to the bar where Marissa Again, real name, Ethel Parker worked, but she never really mixed with customers and there's no leads there. And she had no known enemies and her family lives in Massachusetts. So then his third stop is the apartment of Charisma Beauty and her given name is Gladys Weens. And she's one of the other dancers at the bar. And so he knocks on the door and this woman opens the door and he's like, Charisma Beauty. And she's like, who are you? And obviously it's not Charisma Beauty. It's actually Wilma, her wife. And Charisma hears it at the door. She's like, Wilma, who is it? Let them in. And so Kolchak walks in and he asks her a few questions, but doesn't get very many answers. And then, so then his fourth stop is he goes to a houseboat where Louise Harper lives. And she's the only other dancer who works at the place where all the dancers worked. But she's heading to class and can't talk, but then also doesn't stop talking. Like, just blah, 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 blah. It's like, tells her basically her whole life story as she's, like, trying to get ready to go to school. And he finally gets a word in edgewise and introduces himself. And she's like, you have to come to see me at work. It's the only time I have time to talk to you. And then she gets on the boat because I guess she has to go across the bay. She has to go across Lake. It looks like Lake Union to me. So it looks like she, which wouldn't make sense because she has to get to the U District. It's not a great way to get there, but I guess maybe in 1973, a boat would have worked well. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't understand how that works. So anyway, then he's like, you know, there's been a murder. And she's like, yes, but I also know that Seattle's a large seaport and the killer's probably long gone by now. Yes, because everyone knows killers kill one time and then get on a boat and sail across the ocean, never to be heard from again. I mean, some probably do. Yeah, it's probably get on a boat and then go kill somewhere else. But yeah. But hey, one of the dancers is a lesbian. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. And she has a wife or at least a live-in girlfriend. Yeah. Who Kolchek sarcastically calls, because her name is Wilma Crankheimer, and he sarcastically calls her Gladys's husband because he she was basically like scouring at him the whole time he was talking to Charisma Beauty. But I also think it's hilarious because when he walks in the apartment, she's just like lying on like a couch that's like covered in pillows and blankets and stuffed animals. And she's like... Like she, he's talking to me. He's like, "Oh, would you like a chocolate?" She's just like, just like laying there, and we'll get. She's very 
childlike also they really play her up as like a very childlike not smart person so yeah for sure but yeah explicitly lesbian couple and it's just like not even like i mean like the biggest comment about that is a Colchette calling Wilmer her husband and that's it like nothing else it's just like it's cool which is cool it's pretty nice for 1973 to see like a lesbian yeah, especially couple for like a, a tv movie on i mean like back then there were like it was like network television so that was all there was but yeah yeah yay <laughs> It's always exciting. So then we cut to a new crime scene and there's a new victim. And this is cocktail waitress Gail Manning. And she was killed sometime around 2 a.m. on Thursday, April 6th, a block and a half from the first murder. So Kolchak arrives at the scene and he tries to ask the police captain Schubert questions. But the police captain blows him off and speeds off in his car. We do learn that Gail was strangled. And that's pretty much all we get from that little bit. Yeah. So the next day we're at the medical examiner's office and he's given a briefing and Christopher Webb is the examiner and he's joined by Captain Roscoe Schubert and his staff. And Webb says that there was a needle puncture at the base of the skull from which a small amount of blood was removed. Through Kolchak's questioning, we also find out that the first victim also did have a slight decrease in blood in her body, but they didn't check like for the base of the skull needle stuff. And then Kolchak obviously keeps asking questions that they don't have answers to because he's Kolchak. And, like, the police chief gets, like, totally pissed off. And then, like, Kolchak doesn't get, like, thrown out, but basically is, like, told to shut up. And like, yeah. they, they call him a clown. Like, who's this clown? I've never seen him before. But basically it's, like, you know, someone who is asking questions that you don't have answers to. And so it upsets you. So. Yeah. Yeah. And it is funny that they know that the other victim had, like, a slight decrease in blood because it's such a tiny amount. <laughs> I can't, I just I have trouble <laughs> imagining that they could know that, just knowing. Well, like, I mean, when they drained her, it didn't fill up the container. And so, yeah, it was a tiny, tiny gap. Anyway, but everyone's got a different – anyway, it's fine. doesn't matter. I'm not a blood <laughs> expert. I'm not a hematologist. We talked about this last time. I'm just guessing that that would be a hard thing to just know by looking at how much blood was in her body. Anyway. <laughs> so the veins were shrunk. Kolchak is not satisfied so he goes to the medical examiner's office and bribes an assistant with a nice bottle of whiskey uh Mm -hmm. you do what you got to he's a resourceful journalist right he makes Vincenzo pay him back for the whiskey which is also very very reporter I love it and he learns as he tells Vincenzo that Ethel Parker had a broken neck along with the needle puncture and loss of blood and so did Gail Manning so both of them had their necks broken, and then a needle was jammed into their neck, and a little bit of blood was pulled out. The killer- yeah, because Kolchak doesn't tell Vincenzo all this. He basically has it written on a piece of paper, and he's having Vincenzo read it. And as Vincenzo's reading, he's like, wait, how do we know that this is like this? And he's like, uh, just keep reading. keep." And it's the same kind of thing they did in The Night Stalker, right. where like Vincenzo would be like, but how do you know? And he's like, uh, just keep, keep going. Keep going. <laughs> and it's like, but you can't say, keep going, keep going. So, yeah. And then the killer had to be a really strong man because both their necks were crushed, which reminded me of shadows in the (laughs) X-Files, like Mm -hmm. just their necks were totally crushed. And there was like a residue of rotten flesh found on both their necks as if they'd been strangled by a dead man. Yeah. And Vincenzo loses his shit when it comes to that part. (laughs) Like, what? What are you trying to tell me? What? (laughs) Oh, God. Not this again. No, his reactions are priceless to this whole thing. No, the interactions between Kolchak and Vincenzo are like one of the reasons why this is such a great like little series of TV movies. And I also think that possibly my love for side characters 
was developed from Kolchek because just of all the little side characters that Kolchek talks to, like, you know, like the morgue attendant, and then we're going to find the researcher later. And then he had like the people that he talked to, like in the Night Stalker as well. And just like all the little side characters are kind of like, they're interesting. And that might be where I've developed that like love of side characters from. I'm not sure. But. Yeah, totally. So then it's April 7th, 10, 21 PM. And Kolchek is at Omar's watching Louise Harper belly dance. And then she's done and Charisma comes on stage and he tells her to knock him dead. And then she kind of like, why would I want to do that? I like them. And then he's like, <laughs> and then of course, Wilma's like all looking at Kolchak. She's and like scowling so from goes, the audience. It's great. <laughs> yeah. Well, cause they were sitting right next to each other at first, but then Kolchak had gotten up. And then so Wilma's giving him like the, the evil eyeball. But then Kolchak goes backstage, talk to Louise, but she's trying to do her algebra homework because she's a college student. And then he takes her out for a sandwich at a little sandwich stand that's outside and asks her if she's seen any weirdos or strange customers. And she's like, they're all weirdos. They all just sit there and look at you. <laughs> like any of them could be the strangler. <laughs> and then they see a group of people walking by and Colchette's like, What's, what, what, what are those people doing? She's like, oh, that's for the underground tour. And then Charisma and Wilma come out too to get sandwiches. And she's like, oh, I love these sandwiches. And she's like, yes, there was a big fire in 1889 and the city burned down. And then like, for some reason that I don't understand, they built a whole new city. And yeah, so cool. Yeah. It's, just, it's kind of funny how like Charisma is just multiple times. She's like, and I don't remember what I was talking about, but, and then like goes on to some other topic and just, yeah, she's very, <laughs> they very, She's, she's very childlike. Yeah. yeah. I'd say she's more like flighty, spacey. Yeah. But she does know all about the underground tour. So, hey, yeah. cool. Which, by the way, is real and awesome. And if you're ever in Seattle and you want something to do, like, you have to, like, book tickets or whatever. But it's really, obviously, they're probably not doing it now because of the pandemic. But it's super fun. I've done it several times. And, like, I've just, I've take people when they come to visit me. But I also just go sometimes because I'm like, this is fun. But I'm also a nerd. So it's, it's a fun tour. Yeah. And we're thinking Charisma is probably a pretty popular dancer because they made a big deal about her coming out. But then also Kolchek notices, quote, I wouldn't believe it if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes. But Louise Harper's hips could move as fast as her mouth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's into her a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. So then Kolchak seeks out a man. He works in the police. I get, So I couldn't, at first I wasn't sure where this guy was working, but it's like the police archives and records or something. It's actually the newspaper records and archives. Okay, that's what I thought. And then yeah, it seemed like he Yeah, because he actually works. Because we find station. out later, like the, the owner's like, who are you? And he's like, what do you mean who is he? He works for you. Okay. So he's working at the newspaper archives and his name is Titus Berry. And he points to a distinct resemblance between the current series of strangulations and a series of murders that happened in 1952. So apparently on March 27th, 1952, Myra Johns was found strangled in Pioneer Square. And then on March 30th, 1952, a second victim was found. And then on April 2nd, a third body was found. And by April 14th, six women had been strangled in Pioneer Square in 1952. And his records in the newspaper say that bizarre details were repressed by the police. So they didn't really get the whole story on what was going on. Yeah. Apparently there was another reporter because Coltex like, you know, bless his soul because like he dug under all the stuff and found out like they were like weird reports and that kind of thing. Yeah. So, so I have a question for you. Yes. Was Pioneer Square a thing in 1952? It was because it was built over the old Pioneer Square in 18... 
um, 90, like at the end of 1889 and 1890 after the real fire, which was a real thing that happened. Okay. Well, because I know later, like when we talk about the guy who like started like the underground tours and is like the historian for Seattle. Yes. I know one of the things was he pioneered the revitalization. So it wasn't that it was, it was, it was a thing just it had kind of got run down. And so he wanted to like make it better. It was run down and it was really seedy and they want, and it's like Pioneer Square is next to downtown. So it goes Pioneer Square, downtown, Belltown, Space Needle. If you're ever visiting, that's like the order of things. And so like it had gotten really seedy and run down. And so part of why he started the underground tour and tried to revitalize the neighborhood was to like make it less scary and less like, okay, like seedy so that tourists would go there and it wouldn't be like this, you know, creepy place where like people are doing drugs on the street and like not, you know, just basically the kind of place that like people would avoid. <laughs> okay. So the name was used if I wasn't sure if the name was like new with like the revitalization or if that was No, like, it had been Pioneer Square since like the Great Fire. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So Kolchek is back talking to Vincenzo and of course they're arguing. It's like it can't be the same killer in 1952. It's like <laughs> again, right? Because he's like, what again with like someone coming like super old doing all these murders? It's not possible. Like you know, because the whole story from Las Vegas, right? And the report that Coltick has given him says the suspect is incredibly strong and has the features of a corpse. And then she was like, I can't print this. Like I came to Seattle for peace and quiet, and now I've got Kolchak and another crazy story. And yeah. Yeah, I loved, I loved Vincent because like he's reading Kolchak's report and he, he's just kind of going down and like, it's like, it can't be the same killer. And he keeps reading. Then he's like, what? Yeah, he's, just... like, he's like seeing the correlation to the Las Vegas vampire murders. And he's like, I'm not doing this again. Nope. It was great. It was really. Yeah. Great. Yeah. No, their, their interactions are what kind of in a way make the, and, and this movie, I think is probably, it probably has a little more intentional comedy. Like yeah. just because of like their interactions and like like little one liners and that kind of stuff than the previous one did, but yeah, yeah, it's funny though. So then on Sunday, April 9th at one forty two a.m., Joyce Gabriel is heading home from a date, and it looks like she's maybe going to get killed or something. But then she actually stumbles across a body. So. Well, I think she actually sees him like draining the body. Yeah, I think she walks. What happens? She yeah, walks she walks in like on the murder, middle of the attack kind of and thing. And he yeah. runs away. And so she finds the body. Um, the woman's already dead. And then we cut to like the police wheeling the body away. And Kolchak tries to interview Joyce. And the police chief, Schubert, he gets angry and tells Kolchak to turn off his recorder. And then she tells him the man she saw looked like a dead man. And so Kolchak's like... Uh-oh. <laughs> like a dead man. Yeah. It's funny because like he's like, hey, do you mind? I'm trying to do my job here. Turn that recorder off. And then Coltec's like, all right, all right, fine. And he's like, what do you look like? And he's like, hey, what did I just tell you? And then he's like, what did you look like? And so he's asking the same question. And then she's like, he looks like a dead man. He's like, like a what? And then Coltec's like a dead man. <laughs> so, like it's just more inter- Kolchak is, yeah, Kolchak doesn't endear himself to anyone except nope. for the ladies. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. It's hilarious. So then, of course, Kolchak goes back to Vincenzo with more information. He's like, nope, I don't want to hear anything. That's not official. Don't talk to me. Just, nope, I can't buy that it's the same killer from 1952 and that it's a dead man. (laughs) And then one of the other reporters in the office, she's like, listen to this. And she pulls up and she's all super proud because she typed it out. She's like, this is what I'm going to put in the paper. And it's like, I'm going to walk the streets of Pioneer Square every night and I dare the killer to try to kill me. And Kolchak's like, he might be sick, but he's not crazy. <laughs> you know. 
she's not exactly what we would call a standardly attractive woman. So, and then Kolchak sees a note on his desk that Mr. Barry wants to see him. So he runs off. But it's also funny because when they're doing the report, Vincenzo is trying to eat lunch. And of course, he's drinking milk and he's eating a sandwich. And so he's talking with his mouth full the whole time. And they're going back and forth, back and forth. And he finally gets so exasperated, like, just let me finish my lunch. And he like walks away. And it's just more of just the Kolchak and Vincenzo like dynamic that is <laughs> fantastic. So, yeah. So then we get back down to the archives and Barry pulls down a large archival book and he shows him a newspaper report from 1931. And it also has reports of six strangulations from March 29th to April 16th. And the article does note that they weren't able to get all the information from the authorities or from the police. And a reporter named Jimmy Stacks uncovered this. Oh, this is where that was from. I made a mistake that it was 52. Okay, my bad. So he uncovered some of the victims were missing blood and the killer was some kind of Superman. So this is kind of in the article. And Kolchak realizes the murders are happening every 21 years. And then they find a report of a terrible murder in 1910. And then they're like, okay, well, we need to look back and see if there's anything 21 years before that, which would be 1889, which, of course, was the year Seattle had the Great Fire. So I'm sure that is connected in some way. Yeah, they're like, Mr. Barry, dare we like go back and look (laughs) at the figure like they realize and like, oh, we should go back another 21 years. So, yeah, keep going back. Keep finding. So Kolchak has got all this information. And guess where he goes? He goes back to Vincenzo. And so he's saying like the 1910 description says the maniac had the strength of 10 men and the face of a corpse. And like, of course, Vincenzo like is just like losing his shit, right? Just why can't you keep doing this? But Kolchak talks him into hiring a sketch artist. And they bring Joyce into scrap because apparently the police had them do a sketch artist, but they like suppressed the sketch. They didn't show it to the press. Like no one's allowed to see it. It's like they kept it internal. So the sketch ends up looking like a zombie, basically, with a hat. And because like because she's all describing, it's like, I think he had a, a wider jaw, but like there was more bone sticking out. So obviously not like someone just walking around, right? It's got like his teeth are showing because like his mouth is all deteriorated and his eyes are droopy. Looks like a zombie. So yeah. Yeah. And so then we get to Monday, April 10th at 2.07 p.m. And the newspaper has published the sketch of the suspect that Kolchak got. And the police chief is furious. He calls it irresponsible yellow journalism. And he's giving a press conference. And he's basically talking about how this is like a really irresponsible move. And so Kolchak gets deja vu, which, of course, this is very similar to what happened in Vegas. And Schubert's like, they had no right to panic the public because of tourism, or at least Kolchak's like, well, because, you know, it's getting to be tourist season. Yeah, because we're getting all this description from Kolchak. He's saying, right. like, they have no right to do this. And because. Because. And, like, he knows it's because it's getting to be summer, which is, you know, big tourist time for Seattle. And then the police chief's like, but there's no evidence to support that there's any connection between these sets of murders. And so Kolchak's like, we know too much. And he's mad. And the authorities will be watching the journalists, which Kolchak says means he once again has taken up residence in a pressure cooker. So again, like the police are mad and they're going to be watching everything they do and trying to stop them from printing anything they don't like. Yeah. And Vincenzo has got a memo from the owner of the paper saying that, that if there's any repeat of this morning's reporting, it will result in firing. And, of course, he's talking to Kolchak, right? And Kolchak reminds him, like, in Las Vegas, everyone kept saying there was no such thing as a vampire, but women kept dying. And it's going to be the same thing here. And, of course, like, this argument goes on 
as they yes. do for quite a while. And it <laughs> ends with Vincenzo telling him just like stick to the facts. And of course he means like the provable facts, not the facts that you're getting from everyone that no one's going <laughs> to believe them is what they are. So, cause they are facts. I mean, you know, yeah, they're facts. They're just, I mean, th- these are facts that these murders happened, whether they're connected or not is a theory that hasn't been proven. Although it, it's a pretty interesting pattern. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think people should know. But I'm on the yeah. side of journalism. So. Yeah. So Kolchak goes to like the main library and he's going through the microfiche and the murder trail did stop in 1889 because they couldn't go back. I guess the newspaper that they were looking at that Kolchak now works for, like their record stopped in 18, was it 1886 or 1887? That's when the newspaper started. So he has to go look at other older papers to see if like the murder was still reported, like, you know, in the previous years, which would have been in this case would have been so 21 years. It would have been 68. Okay. So 1868, but there was no reports in 1868. That means I don't think they must Seattle have... had newspapers. In eight... Well, they must've had one, but yeah, it was pretty uh, new. Who knows? It was pretty yeah. small. Yeah. So apparently the murders did start in 1889, which does possibly make sense with what we'll find out later in the movie. But so it turns out that all the murders do seem to take place over the span of 18 days. So that means the killer only has eight days left to find his next three victims. But unfortunately, it turns out he's only going to need two more. Oh, no. Yeah. So. Police stop Kolchak. He's walking around and they ask for ID. And I guess he's in Pioneer Square walking around. And another patrol car, we see like them pull up to a scene and they see they basically do the same thing as the other woman. They stumble on the man who's like got the dead woman. And like as they drive up, they turn on their sirens. And then I guess they radio because the other car that's talking to Kolchak gets like the radio that something's going on. So they give up on Kolchak. They don't care about him anymore and they pull away. And turn on their siren. So Kolchak runs after them on foot and he runs down an alley after the suspect who jumps out and attacks him and police arrive. So the suspect attacks them too. And so he kind of throws them around and Kolchak does get a photo of the man and the police like fire their guns after the suspect, but he runs away. And like, once they reach the main street, he's gone. And then Schubert steals Kolchak's camera and Kolchak is kind of like looking up at the tops of the building and then like looking to see if he can see anyone. And then he kind of looks down at the grate in the street. And so he's like, he had to have gone somewhere. So did he go up or down? Yep. Yeah. Cause Schubert drives up in his car and then he like just reaches out and grabs Kolchak's camera and takes it. Yeah. Such a jerk. Such cops a jerk. Yep. Yeah. Ugh. Yep. So we're at a crowded bar. And it turns out we're getting ready to go on the Seattle Underground Tour. It's getting ready to start. Yay! And the host introduces Bill Spidell, who is the man who invented the Seattle Underground and is a historian that I mentioned earlier, and wrote the book Sons of the Prophets, among many other books about the founding of Seattle and lots of other topics that are about Seattle history. Yeah. Uh, Cole checks in the audience, and of course, he invited Louise to come with him. Because he's a ladies' man. As yeah. he says, Confession of a Newsman, Chapter One. Her being with me had nothing to do with the story. Nope, it's a date. <laughs> a date. That's right. So when this started, like I geeked out so hard when they introduced Bill Spidell because I was like, oh my gosh. So I actually had to look up if it was really him. And it really was. He has a cameo. So he is the guy, again, like he wrote a lot of Seattle history books and he did start the underground tour. And so it was just kind of cool because I was like, oh my gosh. 
It's yeah, you literally messaged me when you were watching this <laughs> I was about so excited. the fact that he was in it. <laughs> I was so excited. And you're like, who? Like, what are you talking about? Yeah, I had to look him up because I was like, who are you talking? I was like, oh, what, what, what character actor is she talking about? Because I'm thinking, oh. I'm automatically was thinking it was one of the character actors. And I'm like, I don't, I'm not familiar with that name. And then I turned out, I was like, oh, it's the historic. Okay, he it's actually just, must be yeah. in the TV movie. So. I just thought it was cool that they really put him in and like. It does look like Doc Maynard's is where the tour used to start, but it was called something else. And then I think Doc Maynard's actually got shut down or became something else now. So I don't even think it's there okay. anymore. But it does look like the same place where I've been to the tour, just kind of older. So it was neat. Yeah, I was I was really excited. About that. But I'm a huge <laughs> history nerd, as we'll, we'll talk about it, because I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of this. But like, yeah, I was yes. really, really jazzed to see him. Caesar, she wrote an essay. I did. So. I'm not going to read it, but I just have information <laughs> on hand if we need it. <laughs> you should read it. I think maybe. You know. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about the information, like how the okay. fire started and stuff like that. So, and the real underground. So the tour guide leads them through the underground and they kind of like duck through this broken stone wall. And the tour guide's kind of telling them about how like twice a day when the tides came in, the sewers would flood. This is part of why the new city was built over the old city because they wanted to solve this problem and everything had burned down anyway. So they're like, okay, we have to build this higher. So as he's telling them that, he also tells them how like the sidewalks and storefronts down there were left how they were after the fire, which is not actually true. And that these buildings are like the basements of the original buildings or whatever. And then the new city was built on top of it. I forget exactly what he says because it's kind of quick. And then we go to Kolchek. So he was probably more accurate than what I just wrote. <laughs> I was just writing down what I heard. And then Kolchek takes... Louise and they sneak away from the tour and so they find this like opening yeah, they, go, and, they go under some ropes and yeah off to the side yeah you're not supposed to it's like in Disneyland you don't go past the ropes but they do and so they sneak in and they find this set of stairs that go up and so then like they're in this little room and Kolchak finds a bottle of whiskey on a table and so he like takes a photo of it and something jumps out from behind and grabs him and so like they kind of tussle a little and the man who attacked him is a squatter so he's just like living in that space and he's not the killer. And so he sits down on a cot and he just kind of complains about how like, just complains about his life and health issues and stuff. And then Kolchak's like, have you seen anyone else under here who like isn't with the underground tour? And the man's like, you too. <laughs> and Kolchak's like, okay, well, I'll give you my number. And if you do see someone or something, um, give me a call. And I think he also gives him five bucks. And then the guy offers them whiskey and they both decline. Yeah, because he's like, I'll give you 20 bucks if you call me and you see anything. And he's like, and here's a down payment. Yeah. So, and the guy's just like, you know, I'm in their space. So I guess why not? And he's squatting there. Yeah. Yeah. And you see, like, he complains about his health issues. He actually is just, like, listing off all his health issues. Yeah. Because, like, he, like... A decade and a half before Roger Murtaugh, he's like, I'm too old for this shit. Because he like tackles Kolchak and then Kolchak like throws him off onto the bed and he's like, oh, oh, ow, oh, <clears throat> and he starts coughing. And then he just sits down and like, screw it. I'm too old for this. Like yeah, my feet hurt and I've got whatever and I've got all these. He lists off all these elements and then Louise is like, are you okay? And he's like, well, yeah. And so they start laughing because obviously he's just like kind of he's the kooky old man who doesn't have a house to live in he actually isn't given a name in the credits but it's al lewis it's grandpa monster so after the tour 
because I guess I don't know if they rejoin the tour later or they're just like they, they like leave after <laughs> they just to snuck Grandpa off Munster. somewhere yeah. yeah and so Kolchek and Louise go to visit the Space Needle so basically he's taking her out to dinner is what he's doing and he's telling her about like oh the same thing happened to me once before and she's like what do you mean so he tells her the whole story about the vampire murders in Las Vegas she's like what that's not real and he's like no it is real and he tells her the whole story and basically, like, ends it with the fact that, like, and they end up putting a murder charge on. She's like, murder? He's like, well, yeah, because I had to drive a stake through the guy's heart to stop him. And then they get out of the elevator, and all the people are, like, <laughs> just, like, dumbfounded that we're in the, they were in a packed elevator the whole time he's telling this entire story. So, and they have dinner at the top of the Space Needle. And probably yeah. have a lovely time. I thought that was really funny because, like, if someone was talking about that and I was in an elevator, I would be fascinated. I'd be like, tell me more about this vampire. <laughs> but, like, just the look, everyone, like, no one gets out of the elevator. There, there are only two stops on the Space Needle. There is bottom and there is top. So, like, no, <laughs> no one gets out, though. They're just, like, staring after him, like, yeah. what? Well, and she agrees because she mentions that. She's like, those people are never going to forget that elevator ride. <laughs> yeah, no, it was really funny. And then... So I haven't actually eaten at the Space Needle. I have been up there a couple times. I actually took my brother Andrew when he came to visit me in like 2004 or something. And I've been up there a couple other times with other friends. I've never eaten at the restaurant. I hear it didn't used to be that good, to be honest. But I think mm. mostly it's it's kind of mediocre. It's one of those things where like you're paying for the view. Although I know that they have changed management a couple times and I haven't heard how it is now. So it might actually be a lot better than it used to be. Like the food doesn't have to be great because you're not really going there for the food. Right. Well, you're thing, going maybe. there to sit in a rotating restaurant so you can see the view and it's it's pretty. Yeah. And so, you know, but I don't know how good it is now. If you want a really good expensive dinner in Seattle, go to Canlis. Okay. Her hat <laughs> is something else in the scene too. Because yeah. she is, she's basically wearing like a picnic blanket. She's like got like red and white checkerboard like jacket and like a red top and I think white pants. And then she's got this gigantic big poofy like like i don't know what kind of hat you call that but it's just it's it, you got to see it to believe it yeah, so, it's... yeah. it's definitely 70s yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. so then kolchek comes to louise's university i guess it's university of seattle i don't know where else it would be well she takes him there yeah she's like, there's someone you got to talk to <laughs> um because he's there to meet an anthropologist who specializes in like supernatural and weird stuff and her name is professor crabwell and so they go into her office and she tells them that alchemy was created to explore the universe. And so then she tells them about this man, the Count of Germain. The Comte de Saint-Germain. And I guess he lives solely on oatmeal, white chicken, and wine or something. And like he remained young for like a number of years and was said to have possessed almost superhuman strength. And so like apparently this was like his recipe for like eternal youth. But then she mentioned some elixir or they start talking about an elixir and he asked her if there are any other ingredients in this elixir of life. And she tells him the ingredients would have to be like milk or meat, celadine or honey. I don't know what celadine is. I don't know if I heard that wrong. It would also need red wine vinegar, pear, sweat, and blood, which does not sound like a delicious smoothie. And then Kolchak asks, like, what kind of blood? And she's like, human blood, of course. And so then he smiles, like, I got it. I got it. Yeah, and she's like, why are you smiling? I know, yeah. Yeah. And Professor Crabwell is Margaret Hamilton, who was the Wicked Witch of the West in Wizard of Oz. That is why she looked familiar. And I then also like the old, like, Mac, was it Maxwell House coffee commercial? Okay, yeah. Soldier's coffee? Yeah. Yeah, she was really familiar and I could not figure it out. I should have looked it up. So that's awesome. Yeah. 
So then, of course, Kolchak goes to see Vincenzo. <laughs> and he's telling him all about the elixir of life. And, of course, Vincenzo is exasperated. Of course. And so he asks Vincenzo, like, how do you... He's, like, being, like, super rhetorical. Like, so, Vincenzo, how do you think an elixir of life might work? Like, would you just take it once? Or would you need, like, boosters? Like, what would you do? <laughs> and so Vincenzo's like, don't tell me. Don't tell me. And so Vincenzo, like recites the story that we know Kolchek is going to tell him like he's like imagine if you were taking that then you would probably need to do this and so you would probably need to kill people every 21 years and you would probably and Kolchek's like yeah yeah go on and then he's like and then and I forget exactly what he says and then he's like and then you can just fly out of this office like a duck because you're crazy and Kolchek's like what and so they get into another argument I guess and then they start fighting and it turns out that the end of the cycle you would start turning into a decaying man and so that's why there's like residue of decomposition on the victims because at the end of the 21 years you start getting old before you get all the new blood and so yeah so stick the facts and then Kolchak goes home and he's riding on the monorail and we get another shot of that so yeah, yeah. but I just love how like Vincendo leads him on like just like they would have to do this because he totally thinks Vincenzo's on board. And then obviously he's not because, yeah, I forget exactly what he said. It's something about like growing wings and flying away, but yeah, it's just, yeah. But I guess it would make sense. Like every 21 years. So the elixir would start to decay after a while. So you would start to decay and look gross or whatever until you did. The... Yeah. So I guess we're getting a little bit of Dorian Gray action going on sort of because you would, basically you're, you, you go to the age that you used to be. So almost like every 21 years, you're probably going to look even worse. New, because yeah. you're technically are older than you were so like you know the first couple of times you'd be like i'm an old man and you're like now i'm a corpse and now i'm yeah so gross so then we get back to yeah super gross Start taking it before that happens like don't you yeah. have a calendar like pay attention like don't wait for it to happen like do it beforehand i mean th- 18 years you know before it starts to get yeah gross. or 20 like, and a half i mean you know whatever it so. takes come on buddy yeah. this guy will learn is not very smart anyway at the dance club, Louise is dancing to an almost empty audience. And so there's like two people there. She's and like looking at her watch while she's dancing. I know. She's like, come on, this sucks. She's not, well, she's not making any good tips. So like what a waste Probably of a not. shift, Probably not. Yeah, I'm right? sure she's not paid like an hourly wage. I'm sure it's based all on what. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it's like an awful shift. So then a man comes in and attacks Charisma. Charisma's in the like dressing room area. Mm-hmm. And he like goes into the back and he strangles her and then takes her blood. And then Louise finds her after her performance and so wilma obviously is in terrible shape because her wife yeah because he apparently must have knocked because wilma was always in there with her so he must have like knocked wilma i think he does i think we do see that he like knocks wilma out i think okay attacks charisma and then you know and then louise is in bad shape because she found her co-worker dead and so like kolchak's like i'm not doing great either so basically no one is doing well right now and also, I'm yeah. really sad they killed one of the lesbians because come on yeah well i mean not even, not even that but just like poor wilma like i mean basically like her wife was just killed yeah no so. it's traumatizing yeah anyway yeah, so then Kolchek bursts into chief schubert's office and tells him he needs to put officers on the waterfront and that they have five days to catch this guy before he disappears again for 21 years and schubert argues there's no evidence that the first series was even connected and so then he goes through and like refutes all the stuff that Kolchek has found and he, and he keeps saying like oh you're surprised yeah we actually do some investigation ourselves because yeah. we're cops and so you know, like in 1910 
Only three of the victims had reported blood loss, keyword reported blood loss. And then Schubert says in 1952, there were actually eight murders, but then Kolchak retorts that like that doesn't count because like two of them were stabbings and that one of the witnesses actually described the strangler as handsome. And then Kolchak's like, uh, and he's like, oh, you didn't catch that, did you? And Kolchak is strangely like doesn't have anything to say. And then so Schubert opens the door and tells Kolchak that he has to leave. So then like the police officer who was like, I don't know if she's like the receptionist for the chief or just like someone who like whatever. Kolchak had burst past her to talk to the chief. And then now she's coming to get him out because he's like, she like show this man out. And so, but then as Kolchak is leaving, he's like, he saw the man's face and he has photos of the suspect that he took and you won't give me my film back. And Schubert asks him how long he's been in Seattle. And then when it's only been two weeks, he just like goes off on Kolchak about like, you come into our town and da, 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 da. And then Kolchak finally implores him to like at least search the underground as he's being like shuffled out. And Schubert says they already did and they didn't find anything. Yeah. Yeah. So when he's like, you have to put officers on the waterfront, I was like trying to figure out why. Cause like waterfront does connect to Pioneer Square, but it's like the very edge of it on one side. So like it's not like that's not really great coverage. <laughs> like they would actually need them. But maybe he just means that they need them everywhere and they're just not in that part or something. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I was just trying to figure out. Why like how he gets the fact he gets in that whole thing that he said, like in the Night Stalker as well. We get we get a lot of little like touchbacks to the Night Stalker of where he's like, I saw that so-called killer wipe up your so-called police force. And so, yeah, I did kind of like that. The cop was able to say, look, I already know about all these murders. Here's what I know that doesn't match yours. I mean, he's not necessarily mm-hmm. right, but I just thought it was good that like he does actually have some idea of what's been going on and it's just like yeah ignoring this these. police officer yeah is definitely still in that like you know like there is no shark yeah Don't tell anybody kind of mode of operate but he's definitely not like as like corrupt as like the sheriff in the last tv movie right stalker he at least so, has some yeah. idea of like what actually has been going on historically and how these might connect or that they don't. Yeah. We also find out that Kolchek has been a reporter for 22 years. Yeah. Because in their discussions of like, you've been a, for two weeks, I've been a cop here for, and he's like, I've been a reporter for 22 years. So gives us an idea of how old Kolchek is. So he's probably at least like 40. Uh, he could possibly still be less than 40, depending on when he started being a reporter. He could have started like at age 16 or 17. But yeah he's probably like he's probably like 40 42 yeah like that, i'm guessing that's kind of what i would guess anyway mid 40s yeah. so kolchak gets chewed out by vincenzo because schubert Whoa. called him <laughs> shocking schubert called him and basically told him what transpired in his office and kolchak insists that he's suppressing the news and the killer's in the underground somewhere even though the police searched it they must have missed him so they argue and vincenzo basically is like you're off the story and so Kolchak goes back down to the archives to Barry and Barry shows him this piece about Mark Twain. And then he talks about this local physician who claims that immortality was not only possible, but probable. And the doctor's name is Richard Malcolm. I might be mixing it up. No, I think it is Richard Malcolm. Cause like Mark Twain is writing the story oh, about, about Richard, Richard Malcolm, Malcolm. Okay. who was like a civil war physician who gotcha. mentioned that immortality. So it's like one of Mark Twain's like little, like, Here's a strange story. I once talked to a doctor who thought that immortality was possible. Anyway, so Barry has one small item on the doctor. He was a member of the original staff of Mercy Hospital in Seattle when it opened in 1882. 
he was a surgeon in the Union Army before that. And there's like a photograph. It's not a photograph, but it's like a, I think a drawing or something. Of yeah, it's like a line drawing. Yeah. And the hospital's gone, but there's a clinic where it used to be. Yep. So Kolchak heads to the clinic and it's called the Malcolm Richards Clinic. Which are like, wait, I thought it was Richard Malcolm. This is yeah. Malcolm Richards. That's confusing. But anyway, he goes there and he's hoping he can find some historical records. But when he gets there, he like walks in, he's like, Oh, he doesn't <laughs> need to look at any records because he found what he wanted as soon as he walked in. So he goes to the phone booth and he makes a phone call. He calls Barry and says, You need to come down here. And then Barry shows up and the nurse is shouting for a man to get down. Hey, you can't be up there. I'm going to call the cops because Kolchak is up on a ledge and he's drawing a hat and beard on the portrait of Malcolm Richards that's on the wall. And it looks exactly like Richard Malcolm. So, and then the nurse calls the police. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was a really fun scene too. <laughs> get down and you're like what is he doing yeah no he's like got a sharpie out and he's like drawing him beard and mustache and hat because in the original picture richard malcolm's wearing like his civil war hat so he draws a hat on the portrait and he draws a beard on it so so then in schubert's office kolchak is wearing cuffs obviously he's been arrested <laughs> um and none of the people in the office believe his story so like he's obviously told them about this elixir of life and richard malcolm malcolm richards and they're just like no and so like schubert says they're not that they're not here for the tuberation. I the tuberation, yeah. Because Kolchak makes a joke about like you know that word, and then yeah, it's like a little it's like what I said it right. I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, and so then Barry arrives with a report on Richard Malcolm because I guess they called him and were like, "Hey, come tell us what this guy's talking yeah, about." Because they're in Schubert's office. Vincenzo is there, and the crossbinder, the newspaper owner, is there, and then there's like a stenographer in the room, and then obviously Barry shows up as well. Right. So he has his Mr. Barry. Yeah. Mr. Well, yeah, I'm just calling him by his last name. But his report on Richard Malcolm is that Malcolm was born in New York and he left in 1868, I guess, after fighting in the Civil War. And six women were strangled over a period of 18 days in New York. And then Malcolm moved to Seattle, worked at Mercy Hospital. But then he disappeared in Seattle in 1889, which is, of course, the year of the Great Fire. He reappeared in 1910 as Malcolm Richards on the staff of Mercy Hospital. So I'm not sure if he had a hand in founding it or what happened there. Well, Mercy Hospital is different than the Mercy Clinic. Okay. So there's some It's kind not a of, hospital now. It's a clinic. It's a clinic. So that's why it's named that. So I guess him. it's kind of confusing because they say Malcolm Richards built the clinic. They say he built it on the burned down remains of Mercy Hospital. But then now it says he appeared in 1910 at the staff of mercy hospital so yeah. not, there's a little there's a little there might be a glitch there in the story but there might be a glitch or i might have just written down something wrong that's possible too anyway in 1931 there were reports that he developed a quote strange degenerative skin disease and disappeared and that's when the next series of killings happened and then barry produces photographs and kolchek holds them up and they're nearly identical including the same scar and one is malcolm during the civil war and the next one is malcolm richards from 1926 and it shows a man in his 40s so and they have the same scar and everything so it's not just like this is my son who looks just like me kind of deal yeah my son who like we totally like reverted the names and went from being (laughs) richard malcolm to malcolm richards yeah (laughs) 
So Schubert's like being sarcastic, of course. He's like, what should we do now? Congratulate you, Kolchak, because you figured all this out for us, blah, 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 blah. And Kolchak's like, no, you need to like research the underground because he's down there somewhere, I'm telling you. And then he's also telling Vincenzo they need to print the story. And then he gets in Crossbinder's face and is like, you need to print it because it's news kind of thing. So we get the little news newspaper thing that we got from the Night Stalker again. And then Crossbinder gets up. And he actually is actually when they're going through the process of like explaining everything, Crossbinder is actually kind of like he actually like stops the cop from interrupting at one point because he's he's understanding like there is actually a story here. Like you guys are making sense. So he's kind of like it seems like he's on board. And then he asks if Kolchak wouldn't mind leaving the room for a while while they talk. So again, we're getting that kind of like, let's have a discussion and not include Kolchak kind of action from the first movie. So Kolchak does get his handcuffs removed and then he's escorted out of the office and he's sitting there waiting in the hallway and then they finish their meeting and uh, Schubert comes out and is like, yes, Mr. Crossbinder, I think we can totally fix that. So Crossbinder obviously does have some power, some pull in the city. Yes. And then Vincenzo tells Kolchak that he got him off the hook, but they're not going to print the story. And that he is going to go cover the Daffodil Festival in Puyallup? <laughs> Puyallup. How do you say that? Puyallup. Puyallup? Yeah. It's one of yeah. yeah. It's one of our weird. Uh, well, it's not weird. I'm, I apologize. It's um, like comes from an indigenous word, so it's hard. Puyallup. Puyallup. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, so he's off the case, and he's going to go. Basically, now he's doing like events. Right. The big Daffodil Festival, which actually now I think takes place up in Mount Vernon. Oh, okay. um, I think maybe, but there is one. In, there used to be one in Puyallup. There might still be there. Yeah. So obviously, I think it seems like Crossbinder thinks because he actually like pats Kolchik on the shoulder as he walks by after the meeting. Is like, good job, young man, kind of thing. <laughs> but then obviously they're not they're not going to do what he says because like they don't want to panic the city. So there's like, again, we're getting that kind of action. Yeah. So Kolchik obviously doesn't do his job and goes. <laughs> flower festival he's like nope so he ditches that and he decides he's gonna set a trap for malcolm like this is his plan now so he has louise walk around pioneer square and he just follows at a distance and so his goal is to like follow her and kind of keep her safe and then they can catch him so they're basically using louise's bait Mm -hmm. they do it for she agrees to it he does agree no i mean they they includes louise like she she yeah because she's had two of her co-workers killed so she's not cool it's like you know hey Let's get this guy. Yeah, no, she's part of the plan. She's not like being used or anything. But she is. She's using herself as bait, I guess I should say. So they do it for three nights and nothing happens. And then on the fourth night, Louise is crossing the street and like a police car comes around the street. And so like Kolchak ducks behind a bush so they don't see him. And then he loses sight of her while he's like hiding from the cops. And he's just told her, like, to stop looking back because it's suspicious. So she, like, resists the urge to look back. So she doesn't necessarily realize he's not there anymore because she's, like, trying really hard not to look over her shoulder. And when the cops pull away, Kolchak tries to catch up with her, but he's not entirely sure which way he went. And then we see her heading down the alley towards the killer. Yeah, because we do see, like, the killer is following. They're actually, like, both heading towards the corner from opposite sides of, like, an alley or something. Yeah. Like almost Scooby Dooey, where they're gonna like meet at the corner, right? So, without being horribly sexist, I had to have to say the cop should have had Sheila go undercover because Sheila was smoking hot. Wait, which one was Sheila? Sheila was the one who like Kolchak burst through her when he went to go talk to Schubert, and then he was like, Sheila, Sheila, get this guy out of my office. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, the the police officer. Wow, Sheila was mm, not that Louise isn't, but like mm, Sheila was looking pretty good in her cop uniform. Although. 
He's just strangling them and taking some of their blood. So I don't know if them being well. I mean, he is killing like extremely attractive women. Yeah, it's cocktail waitresses and dancers. But I wonder if that's just because they tend to be out late and in his path. I mean, in his next one too is that like quintessential like seventies kind of like that's true. Like Italian movie kind of looking woman that he kills. You know, she's French. Yeah. But you also like kind of know why the cops aren't finding the killer because like they don't even know Kolchak is standing like right behind him while they're like standing there looking around. You see anybody? Nope, I don't see anybody. Let's go. And that Kolchak's right behind you in a bush. I know. Yeah. Oh dear. So then Louise is walking, and then there's a siren sound, and then there's a sound of like something being knocked over and breaking, and she's like, ah, and then like lights flash up and a police car rolls up and they get out and they grab her. And then another car pulls up behind Kolchek because Kolchek sees the cops take her away. And he's like, oh, and so he's starting to turn around and walk. And then a cop pulls up behind him and he's like, Whoop, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> and it's Schubert. And so Schubert's like, choose him out. And like, what are you doing here? And they put him in the car and they all leave. And the killer is still in the alley because he was about to get Louise. So in a way, the cops kind of saved Louise's life, probably, because I'm not sure that Kolchek would have been any use in stopping her from being killed. But yeah. So then we're in a restaurant and we see the lights go off from the outside and the woman who works there like sits down to do her like end of night paperwork and someone tries turning the door handle and so she like yells that they're closed and then she thinks the person's gone so she kind of goes up to the window and peers out to try to make sure and then she sits back down to do her paperwork and the killer crashes through the window and so she screams and runs and she gets backed into a corner and so he strangles her. Which, as someone who used to work in restaurants by them, you know, doing the closing shift, there's usually like a cook there, but still, it used to be, it could be kind of creepy. So, yeah, we assume she's like either the owner or like the the hostess or something. Yeah, because she's doing like all the end of night, like tabulations and stuff. And she's dressed like she would be like front of house action kind of thing. So, she's probably like the house manager, if not the owner of the restaurant. Right. And she's got, like I said, this is, this is the French woman that we were talking about. She's got a little French accent. So, yeah, the killer mouth breathes a lot for a stalker. Like when he's stalking like Louise in the alley, he's like, (sighs) (laughs) and then like he's trying to get in the restaurant and he's all, (sighs) (sighs) anyway. So, April 19th, 3 a.m., the police station was chaotic after the sixth murder of our French restaurateur. And Kolchek is also simultaneously being bailed out at the same time. And he says, I told you so, as Schubert walks by. And also we hear policemen walking by saying, oh, we had him trapped, but behind the clinic, he disappeared. And so Vincenzo and Kolchek are talking. And of course, Louise is there too, because she was also arrested. So she obviously is being bailed out too, I'm assuming. Yes. And then Vincenzo's like, I wish I could just leave you here forever and never have to see you again, but (laughs) I can't. And so Kolchek obviously overhears the policeman who's talking about the killer and then he ditches Vincenzo at some point and takes Louise to the alley behind the Richards Clinic. And so he knows that Malcolm has to have a way in and out of the underground, which is probably near the clinic, which is probably why he disappeared when they got him around behind the clinic. <laughs> so they break some windows, like those kind of like windows like Laverne and Shirley would always look out of, like the little basement windows. And yes. so they bust those out. And they sneak in the building, which I'm thinking like they busted the windows out of that little tiny window. And then they must have climbed through there. Oh, like, anyway, maybe put his coat down so they wouldn't get like eviscerated by the broken glass. I don't know. But then they're walking around in the building and there's like lots of plumbing and stuff. And he climbs down this ladder with a flashlight and there's a shaft behind a grate. And so he pulls the grate off 
And then it turns out there's like this big tunnel or something down there. So he tells Louise to stay where she is. And then he goes down the shaft and he's looking for signs of Malcolm. And then he sees a trap door in the floor. So he pulls it open and underneath he can see there's this like huge cavern and there's like a city down there. So he goes back up and he says, hey, in 30 minutes, call the police. I'm going down there. And she's like, you're crazy. But he does it anyway. So he goes down into the city and he finds a sign for Westside Mercy Hospital on the ground. He's walking around and there's like abandoned carriages and multi-story buildings. And then he starts taking photographs. And at one point he goes down some stairs as well. And then is like in like a city under that city as well. I don't know. He's like going on lots of stairs and there's lots of city. Cause like at one point he's walking down the street and then he goes down some stairs and then he's on the street again. And so I don't know what was going on. Maybe that's an editing thing. I don't know. There's also cool fog down there, which is awesome. Cause there's fog <laughs> underground, but he's taking photos and exploring with his flashlight. And he's trying to back up to get one photo and he bumps into like this old wardrobe or something. And it opens up. And he looks, and it's Grandpa Monster. He's dead, and he falls out, and Kodak's like, ah, and falls <laughs> on the ground. Yeah. yeah. So, obviously, in reality, <laughs> the Seattle Underground is not, like, a separate city that's, like, five stories high. Um, that would be super cool. It's, like, one story in most places, and actually, like, I looked it up. Let me see if I can find it. I heard from some places you actually have to duck because it's like so. It's so it goes from like half a story to like thirty-five feet is the highest, but that okay. is that is in a very like rare amount of places because basically Seattle is hills. This is like Seattle's very. If you've been to San Francisco, it's the same thing. Like there's just hills everywhere. A lot of it was regraded around this time, but part of the reason they built like over the old city and raised everything up. So there's an underground is because Pioneer Square is kind of at the bottom of the hills in some places. So there's like this gradient. So that's why it's taller in some spots. And that was in part because they were building sewer systems and like Pioneer Square is at the bottom. So when it rained or there was like a flood, you know, any twice a day, like if people flush their new toilets or whatever, like all the sewer stuff would like end up in the streets of Pioneer Square. So the sewage would just be um, in the street. So that's part of why they raised it up when they rebuilt it. And so, yeah, the highest point is 35 feet in the underground. I mean, but that I mean, is like, I mean, I don't know how big that highest point, like the area. The, it's the not huge because most of it is a half a story to a story. And like I was going to say, but like 35 feet, that's like three stories. Yeah, but so that's, that's that's in like one or two places. And that's not like enough to have all that. I mean, like, most of I it fell is, in a hole. Help me most out. of it is streets because what happened is like, they they wanted to build it higher and then they also wanted to build it out of stone because obviously after the great fire everything like burned down because it was wood <laughs> and so they're like everything has to be stone and then we're going to raise it up and so like people built their businesses before they could build the new streets and so they knew when the buildings were built that whatever was like the first story or half story or whatever was going to be like basement and so it was okay. built that way. So it's not that So did high. they build, because my thought is like, we want to make the city higher. Right. My thought would be like, you would like, you know, like dredge the river or something and you would like get a bunch of dirt and you'd like fill in the old parts. Right. And then you would have a nice surface. So did they like build like, like columns or something to hold up the new city and then no, build on top so of what that? Happened, or... What happened is the great fire happened. Okay. And then. Yeah. They literally built buildings in the same place on the same, like literally on the edges, but mm -hmm. they, they had to be out of stone or brick. And so that was the rule. So they couldn't be wood. And then 
the city came in and decided, okay, we're going to raise this a certain amount of feet based on where it is on the gradient of the hill and decided where the sidewalks would be. And they put in sidewalks. And then for, I don't remember how long, it might've been a year, might've been a couple years, might've been 10 years. It was, it was a pretty decent amount of time. There were sidewalks and then there were like 18 foot, 12 foot, 10 foot gaps in between where the street was. And so they had ladders that you would use to get from building to building. So like you would go to, from the sidewalk down a ladder to the old street, climb up a ladder, and then you would get to the front door of the next building. And like, there are a couple stories of drunk people who unfortunately died because they like fell off the ladders drunk, like trying to leave bars. And so like, like you're they, just walking down the sidewalk and there's a hole with a ladder and you're well, like, whoa, no, it's not a hole. It was just a big gap between the street. So there was sidewalk, then you would down and then it's the old street and then, you know, ladder up and then this new sidewalk. So like there was just these gaps everywhere where the street was going to be. They finally came in and put the street in and then they would put in like, these really pretty like skylights in some places. Like if you're walking around Pioneer Square, you'll see these like glass, like little square things. They're really cool. And like, they're, they're kind of colored. So they're like opaque. You can't really see through them, but like, yeah. So that's what the underground is. The underground is like these streets that were left that, you know, and they built just the new street over and then basements of the buildings that were rebuilt. That's so what I'm not... wondering. I guess maybe if I was there, like, if yeah. I saw it, it would make more sense. But I'm like envisioning like, okay, but like you've got a gap between like you've got like a sidewalk, which in, this sounds like is basically like a landing. Right. And then you would you would go down the landing to like where the actual door was because I built the building before I built the sidewalk. Right. But they would put the front door on the new story. And so the un the underground part was like going to be the basement. And they knew that when they built it. So a lot of people had the doors oh, on the sidewalk okay. level, which is why you were going up and down ladders to get to businesses is you would like go. You would leave the bar on like one side of the street and you would go down the ladder and you would cross the street and you would go up the ladder to the shop that was like on the other side. And so like I'm just thinking like in my head, like there's a street. But there's effectively like a 10 foot curb. And yes. so I'm thinking like when you actually put the higher street in, like what did they use to support the new I street? I don't know. I don't know. And that's a good okay. question. I think it was probably they had beams and, you know, all sorts of weird okay, that's what I think. Yeah, put beams and columns or whatever in there. Yeah. Like, they, okay. So there is stuff in there to support it. But yeah, it's really strange. And it was, <laughs> that's why it's fun to go down there. And you, most of the stuff that's accessible is pretty low. It's only like a story. So I think even the highest parts aren't really accessible. Okay. But is it like, is it like a tunnel or is yeah, it like open air? Well, it's, it's like you're a tunnel because you're under the street. And then there's also like the basements of buildings, which some of them have been sealed off. And so you couldn't get to them from up on the first story anymore. You can only okay. get to them from the underground because of fire hazards or building codes, this stuff got updated. So like some of these basements are locked away forever until you crash through in the underground. And then you will find stuff like carriage pieces, not usually a whole carriage because it wouldn't fit, but like stuff that was left in the basement and storage and like the early 1900s and now has been like locked away because like that part of the building has been cut off or something else was okay. paved over and rebuilt. And so there's this basement from a building that's not there anymore and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. Makes but anyway, there's not a whole city under Seattle, although a lot of urban fantasy stories do kind of do that whole like, Oh, but there's really a whole, and I love, I think it's cool. It's fun for fiction anyway, to be like, Oh, there's this whole, whole city down here. Yeah. I'm still trying. I'm, I'm gonna stop. I'm, I'm like, <laughs> but how would you? I'm, no, I, it, I'm, it's, not an, I'm not a city engineer, so no, I don't know how they did it. All I know is what they did, and like, yeah, it's kind of a mess. But okay. they wanted to get the city out of the muck.
So like all the victims that we see, they're very like, like super gray and like got heavy, like makeup, like I'm, I've been dead for like years. And then once we learn about the fact that like, there's like tissue from like a dead person on their throat then like the next person who's killed when they show her she's like super gray but then also there's like little clumps of dead flesh around her neck like it must have just been left there that wasn't on the bodies before but now that we know about it we can put it there because we know about it but i noticed that like i'm just gonna call him grandpa munster because like he doesn't have an actual name in the thing so al lewis grandpa munster his death he doesn't have the dead makeup he just has like blood on his face yeah and so at one, I was trying to figure out, like, why are they going so over top with the dead makeup? They do that a little bit in the Night Stalker as well. And my thought was like, well, they're probably still doing the thing like they did with like, you know, Frankenstein and, you know, go back to Grandpa Munster. They did like Herman Munster, where they use like green makeup, because when you're shooting in black and white, that's what shows up as that gray that they're trying to get. And so maybe they're still using that, even though we're filming in color, they're still using that kind of makeup because that's like the style. It just became the style because in real life, people saw that as like dead makeup. And so they kept using it. But then I was like, well, why are they not using that on Grandpa Munster? And I was like, oh, maybe they don't use it on Grandpa Munster because they don't want him to look like Grandpa Munster. Maybe. Because then he would look all grayed out or something. And people were like, oh, Grandpa Munster. So, so was this know, vagrant? But... Was he? He wasn't part of the six, right? So he wasn't killed for the elixir? No, I think he was just killed because my he thought was, was like, I, in a way, I was kind of thinking like, crap did like Kolchak result in this guy being killed because like he Kolchak gave him the money and said hey if you see anything so maybe like you know enticed by more money he went looking and then found the murderer and then the murderer killed him or was it just like the murderer happened to see him one day when he was down there and killed him because like, he'd obviously been living down there for a while yeah so a part of me was like oh crap did like Kolchak's involvement with this guy actually lead to his death maybe I don't know. but yeah but I wonder if that's that something like, to do with like the makeup like he wasn't grayed out because he wasn't didn't get like his brain blood sucked out yeah although it's yeah. such a small amount of blood anyway it's fine yeah a vampire would starve on that i'm just saying <laughs> well he's fair. not a vampire no he's, he's... making the elixir of life no so. he's not so Kolchak continues down the street looking for signs of the killer and he's like looking up at these i don't know it just amuses me how big this underground is i would love it if that existed i would live there uh, <laughs> it's so cool so he comes upon a building and he opens the door and like this part really confused me, so maybe you can explain it a little. I get okay. I get what it is, but it confused me. So, like, inside, everything's covered in cobwebs and dust, and he hears music playing, so he follows the sound to this back room. And in this room, like, he finds these desiccated corpses that are, like, sitting at this table, and there's all this food on the table, and the food is rotting, but it's not that old. And this this might just be bad props, but, like, there's no way the food's been there for, like, a hundred years you know it's like it's been there for like a month or something or a year but anyway so these corpses are sitting around and he sees a family portrait and richard malcolm's at the center of it and he snaps a photo and there's this rat on the table and he like <laughs> the rat goes up to these like nice green peas that are bright and green and look like <laughs> they just came out of like a can or something like it's just Wait, it's so weird. And so then but everything's covered in cobwebs and so then Colchick sticks his finger in a teacup and like mm -hmm. he kind of puts the liquid in his mouth, which is super gross. And then someone attacks Kolchak from behind. So I guess my question was like, this is supposed to be Malcolm's family, I guess, but like, why are they sitting around the table and like 
I didn't I didn't get it, I guess. So here's here's my thought because so the only food that doesn't look super like if or if there's any food at all, I'm assuming like any other food probably like the rats would have eaten it, right? Right. The only food that looks like super clear, like, there's like not a body, and they're like desiccated like bodies, right? They're like all like, like I want to say like they're mummies, years. but they're yeah. not. Yeah, you say mummy, people think they're wrapped up. They're not mummy. They're just all they're all dressed and everything. They're sitting around the table, and the only food that we actually really see there's no one sitting there. Right. And there's like a cup of tea right. or something. Right. We don't know what it is. And my thought is like, that's his food. Okay. He's having a seat with his family. Okay. Because he later, he does talk to them. Like one of them is his wife, obviously, because he's talking to his dear wife and, or he calls her darling, I think, or something like that. So it's like probably his wife. Right. And so my thought is like, he's sitting down with his family having dinner. Right. Okay. But I don't know why it's still all like cobwebby and stuff just because that's, it looks but why cool. are the bodies there at all? Like, how did they die? I don't understand. Did he just, as they died, propped them up at the table? Is that what's going did on? Did they die in the fire? That's the thing. Like, my, my the thought about the city, aside from the fact that, like, I don't know that the Seattle underground is looks that cool. Like, <laughs> exactly super no. like, multi-story buildings <laughs> and, like, carriages and stuff all over the place. Although, also, like, Actual just random, gas like, lamps. wardrobes. Yeah. yeah, or, like, just random, like, wardrobes in the middle of the street with dead bodies in them or something. But, like, it was a fire. Mm-hmm. and so wouldn't a lot of that stuff be burned up and not look well this cool? is the again it was the new stuff but here's the other thing nobody died in the great seattle fire nobody not a single oh. person so they're the only fatalities were rats so like nobody died it was a catastrophe lots of people lost their homes or jobs or businesses but there were no like human fatalities i mean maybe he just like maybe his family just like he didn't die because he didn't grow old and so he them i guess as they died he maybe propped them up at the table he propped like them up so they there. could hang out yeah, yeah I mean, it was just yeah, super weird it was just like i was like i don't understand I was like, did they there. die of like did they die of asphyxiation in the fire and so he like that's one reason but that, that's obviously not the reason why he started killing people to be like long live because he started doing that back in new york before they right. moved to Seattle. yeah so i don't know i, don't know. I think it's, it's just it's cool it is, it is it's creepy also, it is creepy cool. it's also got a little bit of and he actually it's weird because it's almost like he, well, we haven't got there yet, but when Kolchek meets him, it's almost like he has an accent at first when he starts talking to Kolchek. And then later he doesn't have like an accent. And when he starts talking to the people sitting at the table, he almost sounds a lot like Anthony Perkins in Psycho. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if there's a little bit of that influence. Too. I'm not sure. Yeah. But. Anyway, yeah, that's my thought gruesome. on the food. Yeah, yeah, because the, sense, the one plate, and so my thought is like, I don't know that Coltec puts the finger in his mouth, but I think he's checking to see if it's warm. Okay, that's what he was doing. That would make sense though, because then he's because, like, "There's like, one like, plate." Because the, the food looks good. There's like potatoes and some peas and yeah, maybe a piece I mean, of meat. I'm not sure. Yeah, it looked but, like delicious. the peas are like super bright green. <laughs> and then so maybe he was checking to see if the tea was warm because if the tea was warm, then that means the guy is around somewhere. Okay, that makes because a the lot music because the music starts playing after he's already down there. Okay, gotcha. And then he and then he stops the phonograph when he gets into the room. But then, like, no one else is there, and he takes the photo. So that's my thought. It's like he was probably in there. He like turns the music on for dinner, la, 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 la. and then like he hears someone, so he like goes away. And then Coltec walks in, and like no one's there, and there's music playing, and there's a bunch of dead people sitting around the table having dinner. I don't know, but <laughs> that's my thought. And like, even the room has fog, so yes. it's, it's like very. This is very dark shadows, <laughs> which makes sense because Dan Curtis is like the director and the producer. Yes. So, 
But yeah, so then the attacker like knocks Kolchak down. He's like, "Who are you?" And so Kolchak's like, "I'm Carl Kolchak. I work for the you know, Daily Chronicle." And he's like, "How did you get here?" And so Kolchak says he came through the cellar in his clinic. And he's like, "Clinic? I don't have a clinic." And he's like, "Well, aren't you Dr. Richard Malcolm?" And so basically tell them who he is. And so then he realizes at first it's almost like you almost saying like the guy doesn't know what's going on, like he has amnesia or something, like he doesn't know who he really is. But I think mm-hmm. it's just an act he's playing because he's trying to, you know. So Kolchak's like, I just want to tell my readers about you. And Malcolm's like, Your readers? And he's like, Yeah, I'm a reporter. Blah, blah, blah. And he's like, Oh, well, guess what? No one's ever going to hear from you again. And then so he's going to kill Kolchak. And then he starts talking to the corpses and he tells Kolchak that he grovels really well grovels nicely is i think the phrase he uses and then his wife actually says like oh yeah i guess it wouldn't hurt to tell at least one other person should know my story before they die so they're going to walk around and he's going to tell kolchak the whole story so the whole weird story yeah so he takes kolchak somewhere and like tells him about like the only way the elixir worked for him was if he used blood taken from the brains of women in the seven seconds following their deaths Okay, so it has to be female blood, we find out. Okay, yeah, it has so to be the blood of different. a woman, and it has to be immediately after they die. So he can't just go around yeah, to Doesn't corpses. he say, like, I won't bore you with the details of how I learned this, but it turns out that it has to be. Right, so clearly so he, he tried it with, like, <laughs> he probably went to morgues and stuff first, which would be the yeah. logical place, because he wouldn't get caught. Probably tried babies at one point, I imagine. I don't know, yeah, this guy, one, he's not super smart for a guy who found the elixir life, and two, he's, you know, obviously a cold-blooded killer. So it has to be taken from the brains, and then he needed six for enough blood. So he has to kill six women to get enough. Because, like you said, there's not a lot of blood that he's taking. Right. It's not a ton. So he believed his immortality was assured after the first dose. So he tried to perfect it because he wanted to give it to others and spare them from the pain of mortality. And I'm like, whatever, Victor Frankenstein. Like, Yeah, well, he's a good guy. He was wanting to, you know, alleviate mankind from their mortality. He's, He's a good guy. Modern Prometheus over here. Yeah. So, (laughs) and then in 1889, he says, My world collapsed. And like Kolchak's like, Yeah, your family died. You started to age. So, again, it does imply that his family might have died because of the fire if it was 1889. Uh, Again, no one died in that fire. I don't know. Well, also, there's not whole cities down there. So, So maybe, maybe in this story, they did die in the fire. Yeah. But it's not, but the bodies, anyway, they're not burnt. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Maybe they died of like (laughs) panic from the fire. Possibly. Yeah. Uh, so Malcolm discovered the elixir was not permanent and he had to kill again. And they're right. They're riding a cool elevator, which reminds me of the elevator in the Bradley building, which is in LA and is used in Blade Runner. And then also in Demon with a Glass Hand. Nice. Well, it's used in lots of stuff. It's like really famous for like being in all kinds of, but it's a really cool building. Anyway, it just reminded me of that. But yeah, so they go to the lab where he brews the elixir. He's got all the cool chemistry stuff, right? Probably some Erlenmeyer flasks and maybe some <laughs> other things, right? All over the place. And although the, the main one, he's just got it's a bulb. I don't know. I can't remember what that one is called. But it's basically a, a, it's a sphere with a tube on top. So, it's, you know, bulbous. And he just describes that, like, you know, over the course of 18 days that he brews it. And then he'll have to, to wait 21 more years before it becomes permanent. So he insists that he's, like, trying to refine it. And it's not going to, he's eventually going to solve the problem. Right, so he can stop Kulchuk's killing because like, he'll get it. Yeah, and Kulchuk's like, really? He's like, how many people are going to have to die for you to figure this out? And he's like, what's the cost of a few lives for immortality? And so Malcolm tells him, like, this is the sixth and final dose right here in front of you, and I need to take it. 
shortly. <laughs> I need to take it now. So, and if I don't take it now, the process will reverse itself and I'll probably die. Yeah. So Colchuk's like, oh, really? So it's like, a, <laughs> it's, it's like a very small, almost like you would have like a poultice in it or something like, or like, you know, almost like a, like a lip balm kind of like glass little thing. Colchuk grabs it, whoa, chucks it goes right through the center of the flask with all the elixir in it. Coltick's got an arm. Yeah. So. Also, like, it doesn't seem like a great idea to tell the person you're with that you need this dose to live or you'll deteriorate. Like, just, I don't know. And that you haven't taken it yet? Let me, let me tell you my weakness. If you destroy this one thing in my hand, I'm going to die. Like, it's just... Well, yeah. not even in his hand yet. He's yeah. Like, it's still in the thing, like, on the... Yeah. So yeah. obviously Malcolm's not happy that he just destroyed his liquid that he needed to survive. So he attacks Kolchek, who tries to run. And Malcolm picks him up and throws him down and starts to strangle him. But because he doesn't have the potion, clearly he needed to take it right then. He starts to age and his body kind of reverts back to an old man. And so he's like, strength, like he weakens, like he loses his strength. And he stumbles away from Kolchak and he kind of is like, why, why? And, yeah. and then the police rush in and Malcolm runs and he jumps out a window. And then, you know, we see his body lying on the pavement several stories below. Yep. So then Kolchak is whistling. He's walking through the newspaper office because he's happy. He yeah. like submitted the story. Everything's cool. And then he gets to his desk and all this stuff is on top of the desk in a box. It's all packed up. And his briefcase is on top. And his coworker, the one who was like going to, you know, declare that she was going to walk through Pioneer Square and dare the killer. And she's like holding up newspapers all killer found identity unknown. And Kolchak's like, <gasps> And he storms into Vincenzo's office. He's like, what's going on? Where's my story? And Vincenzo's like, you want to see your story? I'll show you your story. Here's 20 copies of your story, front page news, that were printed before the owner put a stop to it. And so, of course, they fight. Kolchak is furious because he's been fired. Vincenzo tells him, he's like, if you ever see me again, just keep walking. And Kolchak storms out. And he storms out. He grabs something else off someone's desk. And he throws it again got that arm throws it through vincenzo's window because he's got one of those offices where like there's a window too right so we'll close building inside the building bust the window inside it's like <gasps> and then vincenzo's like ah and then the phone rings and vincenzo was asked to go upstairs my only thought is it's like 20 copies of this paper like i would have walked out with them because like collector's item <laughs> right plus so, it's got your story you need that for your portfolio yeah. and also i don't i'm not sure that's how printing newspapers works where we print like each paper entirely and fold it up and then we do the next one but might have just been like the front page or something i don't know maybe i don't know. they look like full papers but yeah so then kolchak's voiceover tells it's another case of virtue unrewarded and he's talking into his tape recorder as he drives and then we see vincenzo's in the passenger seat because vincenzo tells him to shut up with the recorder and so yeah, they're and he's drinking milk out of a carton i think or something <laughs> So they're heading to New York because Vincenzo was fired too. And then yeah. Louise is in the back seat and she's mad because she was one semester shy of getting her degree in psychology and then she was arrested. So I guess maybe she got kicked out of school or something. I'm not clear. Or she was like run out of town, like get out of town or we're going to throw you in jail. Maybe it was that kind of thing like they did in the maybe. Night Stalker. Yeah, but basically all three of them are in a car and they're heading to New York, which would set them up great for it. Like maybe a sequel or a TV show. Yeah, although the sequel was apparently supposed to take, there was supposed to be a third movie. I believe it was going to be The Night Killers, 
but it was going to take place in Hawaii. Oh, nice. And it was going to involve robots and UFOs. Oh, man. My understanding is like, it was like almost like a body snatchers kind of thing where like the robots were replacing people, but it was like an alien UFO, maybe possibly thing going on. So I'm not sure. But that was supposed to be the next one. But then they like, they decided to make a TV series about it anyway. The TV series actually takes place in Chicago. And then Carl and Vincenzo are the only two people from the movies that are in it. And then, of course, Richard Matheson and Dan Kearns are involved. And it only lasted one season. Only 20 episodes. Yeah. Oh, sad. What could have been? Who knows? But I probably would think it would have been better if they stuck with the TV movie every year. Yeah, that'd be cool. I would have liked to see the Hawaii Robots one. That'd be sweet. Yeah, especially because there are different stories out there. But one reason why the TV show didn't do well was because, like, I guess the network really didn't promote it very well. And then, two, the quality wasn't up to snuff. And that's one reason why Darren Darren McGavin apparently, like, just loaded lots of his own personal money into the series because he really liked the character. But the TV show he hated because it wasn't the right kind of quality. And so he was really trying to save it, but just couldn't yeah. save it. And so he walked away from it and was really bitter and, like, didn't want to do tv series anymore and that kind of stuff so yeah sad but less than two months after the night stalker aired so on march 7th of 1973 darren mcgavin played lee major's boss in the first of three tv movies which eventually became they were also abc movies of the week by the way they eventually became the de facto pilots for the 74 78 television series the six million dollar man oh nice but in the second and third, and then the series itself, the character that Darren McGavin played, so they changed, this is weird, it's weird, the story, the character names are different, but it's basically the same character, but they have different names, but the character is played by Richard Anderson, and that's one of the things he's most famous for, is playing Oscar Goldman, who was Lee Major's boss, Steve Austin's boss, in The Six Million Dollar Man. Yeah. So they basically played the same character, and then they were in this movie right before that. Nice. Yeah, there's some difference because Darren McGavin played a character called Oliver Spencer, and then Anderson played Oscar Goldman. Because The Six Million Dollar Man is based on a book called Cyborg, and in Cyborg, the character's name is Oscar Goldman, but he works for OSO. And in the TV movie, they changed the character to Oliver Spencer, but he worked for OSO. But then when Richard Anderson took over in the second TV movie and then the third and then the TV series he was Oscar Goldman but he worked for OSI Okay, and so there's a lot of weird like fandom of like people trying to like figure out why there's two different characters because they're not the same character they're different names right so we're not allowed to say they're the same they're the same character they just use a different name for like legal reasons or something right and then they changed it back but there are all these convoluted stories about like why it was Oliver Spencer in the first one. And then it was Oscar Goldman and why it was OSO. And then later it's OSI. There's like all these stories, like people trying to make sense of it. Yeah. And why, and why that's the case that it's cool. And it's just kind of crazy. Yeah. I mean, that's what you do in fandom. You try and make sense of the nonsense. Cool. Well, you just ignore it and be like, they just use a different <laughs> name because it was the first time. And then they switched it and it's the same character. But anyway, I don't know. It's fun to figure out in universe why that would happen. <laughs> yeah. At least something for me. that you might be interested in. So Richard Anderson as Oscar Goldman, and this happens in the second TV movie. So right when he starts playing the character, he is credited 
for creating the move. What's the move? Which is when you're about when you're about to say something serious, you take off your glasses. Ah. Which I believe is something that Walter Skinner also uses to great effect in some show from the 1990s called The X Files. Yeah, yeah, I can see Skinner doing that. No, but he is credited for creating that. It's called the move, and it, and he says, I guess, like in some interview, like not too long ago, he said that basically he did it because he was trying to remember <laughs> his lines, and so it was a way for him to like stop and remember his lines. But it became like a signature, like he did it through like the entire thing that oh, started nice. in that second and team. that's something that definitely happens on other stuff too so he yeah. definitely pioneered he pioneered a whole tv action mm-hmm. that's cool and the night strangler had to be a direct influence for the series of murders and squeeze like with the whole like you know every so many years oh this yeah many people i think i think we talked about that when we talked about squeeze i know we definitely talked about the use of like the eyes in the night stalker and squeeze i think we talked about the night strangler and I think this might be when I first mentioned it to you. And so. Yeah. Yeah. But that's definitely a very similar, like every so many years and every, it has to be so many people. And like, obviously Tombs needs liver. This guy needs brain juice. Like it's yeah. very similar. Although Eugene Tombs does not have his family sitting around a table that we know of as desiccated corpses. That we know of. That we know of. We don't know. We did see his home though. I didn't see any room for that. Yeah, I mean, what's his face did write like a whole backstory for Eugene Tombs that he sent to Chris Carter. So. I would love to get my hands on that script and just find out what he came up with. Oh, uh, you know, it was crazy. It was. Oh crazy. yeah, no, it was. Yeah. So, just a little fun history trivia. Do you know what caused the Great Fire of Seattle in 1889? Probably not a cow. I don't know. I mean, not that's that's cow. that's some urban legend too in the Chicago. That's an urban legend in Chicago. Yeah. yeah. So. It's the funny fact that the city used... was made of wood and everything was lit with fire. Well, so the city was made of wood. It was incredibly dry. So the Great Fire actually happened on June 6th in 1889. And it, it, we had had like a weird dry spell, which Seattle, like a lot of times we call June, January because it tends to rain I like how you just said we had a really dry, like you were there. We did. Oh, yeah. I mean, I wasn't there. I'm not immortal. Oh, Don't hmm. come after me. <laughs> Um, but anyway, so Seattle was really dry and it used to be said that like someone knocked over a candle, but what actually happened is on the corner of what's now first in Madison, which is like kind of where Pioneer Square sort of starts, like it's part of Pioneer Square. There was a cabinet shop called Claremont and Company, and they were boiling this pot of glue because they used the hot glue to like put cabinets together. Mm -hmm. And the pot of glue caught fire and a worker tried to douse the flame with water and it made the glue explode (laughs) so like hot glue flew everywhere with like flames in this wooden building and engulfed the building i don't i don't remember um it kind of it kind of reacted like if you like if you try to put out a grease fire with water yeah it it was exactly the same thing where like it just exploded everywhere so then like flaming glue went everywhere in the in this wooden building and no one and no one died no one died. Everyone got out of the building. The wow. fire spread really rapidly, though, through Pioneer Square. It ended up burning down. So we didn't have a real fire department yet. Again this is where the, Seattle... I like how good with that. We didn't have a real fire. We didn't. <laughs> and I wasn't there. I'm just saying what I've read in articles by journalists. <laughs> but Seattle didn't have, like, a real fire department. So volunteer firefighters came. They exhausted their resources. They tried to save buildings. They tried to, like, douse buildings. It was just so dry and everything was wooden that by 3 a.m. over 21 blocks of buildings had been completely like just decimated. So like it was just, yeah, it was really devastating. So 
25 blocks. It's funny because like you hear all about these, like, you know, the great Chicago fire, the great London fire, the great, you know, the San Francisco fires after the earthquake. And there, there was one like not too long before that. And same thing with the big London fire. There was one like about 20 years before that too. Mm-hmm. And it was like, Oh, what? cause every, yeah. Cause everything was made out of wood and everyone used candles. Like that's why right. stuff caught on fire. Well, and that's exactly why when they rebuilt, they're like, okay, it has to be stone. It has to be brick. We're not doing this again. And also we're raising the streets because we're tired of walking through sewage. So, And also like (laughs) they didn't really plan cities back then. So they just kind of like were like everything was like built like really close to each other. I mean, not that Mm -hmm. cities aren't like that now, but like everything was very dense. And there was no planning of like, oh, we maybe we should have some spaces between buildings and yeah. Yeah. So it just, yeah. So that was what it was. It was <laughs> hot glue that exploded. And so yeah, miraculously, nobody died. I would say knowing that I am really surprised that, I mean, maybe someone was, I was just like, I was thinking like hot flaming glue. Oh, I'm sure someone got injured or had a burn or something. I mean, yeah. especially the employees in that store. I'm sure one of them, but it wasn't a very crowded store. I think it was just one or two employees on hand at the time. So I don't know. Anyway. That's what huh. happened, and it burned down a whole ton. So it was before 3 p.m., so yeah, it was early afternoon, and then it spread through the night. So in about 12 hours, it burned like 25 blocks. Wow. Yeah. Anyway. I was also <laughs> thinking, in a way, it's too bad that um, that Richard Malcolm died because, I mean, you have to end the movie, right? He couldn't escape. That would not be a good ending for the movie if he escaped and like, oh, going to kill. But if he had escaped, then... Mulder and Scully could be investigating some similar murders in 1994 because that would be 21 years. Ooh. Yeah. That'd be cool. Yeah, Yeah, I'd like to see. I don't know if they ever do anything with any underground. A lot of cities have undergrounds, but like, because again, shit used to burn down. Oh, God. Stuff used to burn down all the time and then you had to build over it. And a lot of times building over it meant building up. A little bit for various reasons. Yeah. I'm totally keeping you saying shit in there because I say shit all the time in the podcast. <laughs> and every time you say it, you're like, oh, I can't say that. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm leaving all mine in. So I'm totally leaving yours in. I do. Oh, I know like a lot of UFO is like, you know, underground bunkers and that kind of stuff. So they might get into some underground stuff like that. Probably not underground city though, but no, who knows? but those are cool. I do. I do appreciate those in fiction. I always think it's neat. Oh, there was something I was going to ask you about because in the opening, Kolchek says that this is the most whatever it is murders in Seattle. Yeah. What are the most like important murders in Seattle? You would probably know this. I'd say Ted Bundy and the Green River Killer are probably the two most famous. Ted Bundy was in Seattle? Yeah. Yeah. I actually used to go to a bar that he went to in the university. Obviously it was years later and he was dead already but yeah, he used to go. I don't know why. I just always assumed Ted Bundy was like New York. I don't know why. No, he's Seattle. Then he moved to he had he moved to Colorado, and then he got arrested in Colorado, and then he escaped, and then he went to Florida, killed people in Florida, got caught, and that's where he was put in jail and put to death eventually. Huh. He started. Yeah. I'm not a big. He works for a suicide dude. hotline here, and he oh. was a Republican who was trying to get into politics. Oh, so he was a great person. Yeah, I just I just automatically assumed he was a New Yorker dude. No, Maybe I was then, conflating him with like Son of Sam. Or and something. then the Green River Killer was a couple of years later, and he tended to strangle sex workers mm. and picked one up in a hotel that Norwest cons at every year in SeaTac. And then he stopped killing for like 20 years and he was eventually caught because he got married. So he just like stopped killing. And then oh. they eventually caught him like 20 years later. Now, when, what years were, so the Green River was after Ted Bundy? Yes. And Ted Bundy was when? Uh, 74 to 78. I just looked that up. I didn't know it off the top of my head. 
Okay. Okay. So then none of that stuff had happened before. Right. So, so at okay. the time, that is probably like if, if you take those as real killings, that would have been the most horrific murders up to that point, except for like, you know, massacring indigenous people. Well, we don't count that. <laughs> They're not people. We don't count that. But in terms of serial killer, like, yeah, so that would have been the worst because, yeah, Ted Bunny started in 74 um, that we know of. And Green River Killer was slightly after that. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask you that because I was like, oh, I bet Tori knows something about the history of murders I know lots in Seattle. Of, I do know a lot about the history of murders. Okay. It's terrifying. I don't know how I sleep at night, to be honest. <laughs> cool. I mean, not, but, you know. No, I mean, but yeah, it was kind of, because when he said that, I did kind of think, well, but Ted Bundy was here. and But, but yeah, that would have been after. That would have been after. So at, as, in 73, he's not wrong as far as I can think of. Okay. In that weird April of 73, even though this is airing January of 73. I know, and the Great Fire was actually in June. So if it was like. And I guess the Great Fire didn't have anything to do with when he needed to kill because he had been doing that. Since no, I think it was just maybe convenient. Like he had just like he had just juiced up and was like, cool, 21 more years. Oh, crap. My family's dead. So I'll just hide in this underground that they're building around me because. Yeah. And then figure out my formula so I can make this permanent. Yeah. I guess there's no really way to tie him to the fire. That would have been an interesting little subplot, too. Yeah, that would have been if he, like, started it because he was, like, trying to cook up his elixir. Or just trying to, like, cover up something. Oh, yeah, that, too. So he, oh, or if he did it so he could disappear, because that's when Richard Malcolm disappears. Right. And then he, and then he comes back in 21 years as Malcolm Richards. Uh... Ooh. Maybe, Wait, when was don't... the hazard killings? That wasn't in Seattle, though. That was in Olala. And she didn't really, I mean, she did kill, but she just starved people to death oh. for their health. She started. I mean, that is killing people. Yeah, so. I mean, it is, but like she wasn't in the streets, like slashing them down. Yeah. With a That's knife. one of those where like she built like a, like a sanitarium, like a health, like a health resort yes, sort of thing to yeah. help people and just basically start. I think uh, I had listened to a thing about that. Yeah. Linda Hazard was her name, which is a great yeah. name. Mm-hmm. And then yep. she ended up dying. She ended up starving herself like 40 years later. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Seattle. Oof. Did you like it? I did. I did. I thought it was really entertaining. I thought it was really fun. Um, I liked how, I liked how it had enough similarities to the vampire story where they were like, oh, not again. And like Vincenzo could be like incensed, like, are you kidding me? You're going to do this a second time. (laughs) Um, And then it was something different. And I did. I kind of liked I mean, I did like the whole Frankenstein. I'm trying to find a cure for death and save humanity or whatever. Like, I, I didn't think that was a bad motive. I just think he's really not smart telling the dude that's standing right there. Like, Oh yeah, I need to drink this right now. Or I'm screwed. Well, I know, yeah, but like, like we talk about in X-Files all the time, you need some exposition you to explain do. it. You do. And Scully wasn't born. Scully yet. wasn't there. Well, she was probably, well, she was born in 73. She was born, <laughs> but she was still like in elementary school or maybe, well, she was in middle school. Maybe I'd forget exactly. But, yeah, so you know you she wasn't there to explain everything, and so we needed someone to explain it. And you so did. 
it's the standard like i'm gonna tell you my evil plan before i kill you mr bond because and you have so, to know in order to understand yeah. no it was it was good it would have been kind of fun if they had figured out that was his weakness some other way but i don't know how they would have gotten that in because we didn't know enough about him but yeah it was it was fun it was a really good movie it was entertaining i laughed a lot <laughs> and i love just seeing old seattle because like 73 is long enough ago but like stuff is still really similar and it's just i don't know it's fun it's like oh look there's the monorail oh look there's the ferry yeah. oh, it's kind of how i felt i mean like when i first got into you know the night stalker when i first watched it like i had no inkling of like las vegas i mean i knew what las vegas was but like you know but then i lived there for like three years which isn't a long time but i lived there i worked on the strip and so like going back to watch it again it was even more like, oh, like the 70s Las Vegas, like it's so different. And like, you know, I'd been to Las Vegas in the mid 80s for a few weeks, staying with some family where I got chicken pox, which was awesome because it was August. Gross. Yeah. But yeah, but like just to see like uh, it was different enough from, you know, 1986 to like 2005 to 2008, obviously 20 years would be different but then to see it even further back was interesting and so i imagine the same thing here because you see that's what's cool about these you know for sure that they would have filmed on location in hawaii oh yeah for sure they were totally would have gone i mean the brady bunch went to hawaii colchick was going to go to hawaii yeah so yeah it'd be really yeah that would have been really fun to see but yeah, it was fun to see Seattle. And like, I'm, I'm a big history nerd. So again, Bill Spidell, I was like, oh my God. And them using the underground, I thought that was really smart. And it was a really cool like twist on it. And I don't know, it was neat. Yeah. Also the music again, just like in The Night Stalker, that cool 70s like cop show music. Oh yeah. Just, I love it. That kind of like funky jazz kind of action going on. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like now maybe we, maybe, maybe we need to watch the TV series. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. And see what, what sadly happened. not filmed in Chicago. Aww. It was actually filmed on like you know, it was filmed like in a studio, right? Yeah. But they're in Chicago. So another one of the things, just because it's now a network thing, so we're gonna budget cut it to pieces. It's not a it's not an ABC movie of the week anymore. It's a TV series. Yeah. That they're not gonna support very well. Oh, but, it's too bad. Yeah. Because the characters are really fun. They could definitely have done a lot of stuff with it. And I can yeah. definitely see where like Chris Carter is like looking at this stuff, watching it going, you know what? We could do something similar and be cool. Mm-hmm. And Kolchek always does have like a, I mean, not that Scully is a female sidekick, right? She's a partner, but in both of our movies, Kolchek has like a sort of a partner in a way. He had Gail in the first one and then he's got Louise in this one. Yeah. That he's working with and running around with. And mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, at least Kolchak is like, yeah, I'm totally interested in this lady. Unlike, you know, Mulder and Scully, which are like, I love you, but I don't love you, but I love you. First of all, it's slow burn. And second, <laughs> maybe they haven't admitted it to themselves yet. Okay. <laughs> Give them oh, some okay. Time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, dear. Cool. I got nothing else. Yeah, I don't think I do either. That was really fun, though. It was good to watch. I liked watching it again. Yeah, it was fun. It was funny. I laughed out loud many times. And I was like, no, there's a lot of, I mean, especially like Kolchek and Vincenzo. Yeah, they just, have a really good yeah. dynamic, which is always fun. Yeah. I don't know. Carl and Vincenzo are the only two people from the TV movies that are in the TV series. They do have like a cast of characters, but it's always the same ones. I think that might have been 
also a mistake in the TV series. I get it because they can't just keep going from city to city, right? You, if we're going to newspaper, it's going to be the same people. But I think that might have been an issue because I think the a lot of the side characters are something that also helps with this. Yeah. You got different little idiosyncratic individuals. So. All righty. Well, I'm glad you watched this with me. And yeah, maybe we'll do the TV series. Okay. I'd be curious to see it just to see how it is. And if it sucks, we can just <laughs> do a couple episodes and be like, nope. Nah, we, you got to commit. It's all <laughs> or nothing. You can't just do like a few of them and then be like, nah, I'm out. You got to do all of it. <laughs> well, so. it's not that many. It's only like, what, one season? It's 20. Okay. Yeah, there's 20 episodes, I believe. I mean, I sat through like three seasons of Forever Night. I can sit through pretty much anything. <laughs> that might be something I need to go back to at some point. I have not again, I seen still- it since I was like... 15 so i cannot vouch for how good it is it might have been yeah i mean i still haven't gone and watched the second season of the umbrella academy i haven't watched the second season of the boys i haven't even watched the last four episodes of russian doll i've only watched four episodes of that and i stopped and then i haven't finished i did watch all of russian doll that's a series don't tell me because i I do plan on watching it i just stopped so and then I didn't go back. Yeah, I do that sometimes, and then I forget where I was, and then I never watch it again because I don't remember where I was. But then I try and start over, and it's like, no, I've already seen this, and I get bored. So yeah, anyway. Yeah, strangely, as someone who is working on a podcast called "I Want to Rewatch," I'm not really a watcher. I don't like sitting down and watching stuff. I like watching stuff, but like I go through. I prefer to like just listen or like yeah. read. I don't like to watch. I don't know why. Huh. I like to watch, but I'm picky. And like, there's some stuff I just have trouble getting into, which I should like on paper. And then I'm just like, I don't have any interest. I think I just don't like being confined. Yeah, I always tend to. So I'm pretty like, I used to knit a lot. I should get back into that because I tend to, I need to multitask. I have trouble sitting still. And so like a lot of times. Yeah, see, I don't. I like If I'm watching something, I I commit to it. And then it's like, you know, not that I don't sit down and do something. And, you know, three hours later, realize like, oh my God, it's just been three hours. But for some reason, like watching TVs or movies, I always feel like, oh, I just, all I did was sit here for like an hour. What the hell? <laughs> but yeah, it's, I, my brain works weird. So. It's okay. So does mine, just in a different way. All righty. I Want to Rewatch is hosted by Tori and Nick and recorded at Black Cat Studios. Hashtag really just a bedroom closet. Episode production, editing, and mixing is by Lazy End Productions. Our music is Dark Science by David Hillowitz, and the truth is what we make of it by the agrarians. Our premium feed is where you can find all of our X-Files adjacent bonus episodes covering television and films that are, you guessed it, X-Files adjacent. If you like these bonus episodes, tell a friend about our Patreon page. We'd love to have them join us. Speaking of which, be sure to join us next time as we try to figure out if the the truth truth is still out there.
the Night Strangler. Well, Tommy, I added an extra <laughs> syllable to that, I think. Okay. The Night Strangler. The Night Strangler. The Night Strangler. The Night Strangler. <laughs>